they don't pay me the big bucks for, for nothing, man. I'm a, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, forgive me. <laughs> I figured I'd make it easier on them. The, the, the normal guys are, are out, of, uh, out of commission for this morning that does that, so it's not a problem at all. Couple of things I just want to say, things that pop into my mind. Uh, one is, man, I'm encouraged by seeing new faces here in our congregation. I say new, newer faces. Some of you are relatively new. You've been coming for a while, and I want to encourage you uh, to continue to gather together with the body of Christ to worship Him because He's worthy of all of our honor and praise that we could give Him. And, um, and even if we give Him everything that we got, it's not enough because He is worthy of it all. And a um, couple things, since this week is missions moment and we talked about prayer uh, for missionaries and the necessity of so many people supporting in missions, there's been a ministry that this church has supported for for many, many years. Uh, they've supported Pedro and Ana Samuk and uh, have done, our church has been involved with the town of Santiago, Atitlan, Guatemala for many, many years, and that's where our family served uh, when we were on the mission field. And uh, we uh, received some great news uh, in the past couple of days that the Sutuhil translation of the Old Testament and the revision of the New Testament is 100% complete. Listen, this goes back to what she was sharing earlier. That did not happen in a vacuum. That only happened with the support of churches like ours. Individuals, other missionaries that have walked along with that project, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, Wycliffe Bible Translators, and all those that has been involved to ensure that this people group has the entirety of their Bible in their native tongue. And that is something to praise God about. Um, So let's continue to pray for Pedro and Ana, Antonio Pope, um, Diego Samuk, Francisco, and uh, and really there is a much broader team that's been working there in uh, in Santiago in Santiago Atitlan. Uh, the The translation will go to Korea for the printing, and that will take about a year. So, I'm putting in a plug here for myself and my family. In about a year's time. In about a year's time, what we're going to do is plan on traveling back to Santiago when there's a celebration day for um, uh, the completion of the Bible in that language. So be praying uh, for that time because I want to get back there. My family has not returned to Guatemala since we left. And uh, the last couple of years, we've been anticipating this day and look forward to, to going back and visiting with our brothers and sisters there. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today's message is entitled, An All-Encompassing Need. An All-Encompassing Need. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And if by chance we do know why these lights went off, uh, could you please turn them back on? I can see enough, but I can see better with lights. Ah, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in in every way. Paul says, this is good. 
and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at a proper time. Paul says, for this reason, I was, in, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I am not lying, he says. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we do come before you as we consider this passage that, God, you would reveal to us the meaning of this word in such a way that we would forever be changed. Thank you that... Over the last couple of chapters, we've heard the good news of Christ. We've heard the story of the gospel, the necessity of preaching a clear gospel in a day that rejects the gospel message, in a day that wants to cloud the issues of of religion. But Father, our greatest goal, our greatest desire should be that the gospel go out with great clarity, that souls would be saved. And fathers, especially as we consider that subject again this morning, especially within the context of praying for such things, that, Lord, that we as the body of Christ would see the gospel with such urgency that it would move us to a position of of prayer and ultimate dependence upon you for the salvation of all people. We commit ourselves to you this morning, Father. Speak to us. Allow the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We commit this day to you. May Jesus be uplifted, and we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we know that Paul urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus, to confront the false teachers But one of the things that we also know from reading and studying 1 Timothy is is that Paul was about the ordering and the organizing of God's household. This is much of what this particular letter is about. And we can clearly see that Paul uh, begins to give an assessment of the needs at the church of Ephesus. The larger context of of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is really the subject of public worship. Paul seems to be preoccupied with the behavior, behaviors and the activities of the worship assembly. And as we will note, throughout the pastoral epistle, Paul tells his co-workers uh, to remind them and to teach that which accords with sound doctrine or that which accords with sound teaching. These instructions offer directly to the worshiping community and its leaders. I would also like to note that as Americans, it's easy for us to look at a text and think about this text as my individual responsibility And that's not necessarily a bad idea, but sometimes we lose the meaning of the text. And when we ask the question, what is my responsibility? What my responsibility is, is really an application of the text. But what does, what is Paul trying to communicate? And like I had mentioned that my responsibility is not necessarily a bad thing when thinking about Bible passages, but we need to see it from, from Paul's point of view. What was Paul's context? And I believe that he is addressing the whole of the local church. We're going to talk about prayer today. And where it may be easy for you and I to walk away and say, I need to pray, but we really need to walk away with this kind of group way of thinking that we need to be moved to prayer. As a local congregation, Paul wasn't necessarily addressing the individual, but he was addressing the assembly of the churches at Ephesus. Now, at first glance... It's like I had mentioned, it's easy for us to to look at it from an individual, but I believe what Paul was addressing was the whole of the worshiping community. 
And when I say that, I say that because as a pastor that I'm preaching to you, and yes, I love it when people respond to the preaching of the Word of God and they come to me on an individual basis and said, you know, this really spoke to me. God is dealing with this certain aspect to me. But there's another aspect to where I want to see that when I preach the Word of God, that we corporately move together. Do you see what I'm saying? That we, that we are so moved as a congregation that we as a congregation are obedient to God rather than I am an individual that's being obedient to God. Now, you can't have one without the other. I'll acknowledge that. That we are a group of individuals. But my prayer, much like Paul's, I would say, prayer for the church at Ephesus is that God would work within the, the, the local assembly, the whole of the worshiping community. Now, one of the things in a cursory reading of the first seven verses, we can see that Paul places a priority on prayer. But I want to tell you that I do not believe that that prayer is the primary subject of chapter 2. The subject, or at least the subject of of the larger context of chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I believe is the gospel. When you look at it as a whole, Paul is talking about the gospel. The necessity of the gospel and how there was this one mediator between God and man who gave himself as a ransom for all. But what we do see is that prayer has a central role. That prayer has a central role in the mission of the gospel in the world. It has a central role of God's mission in the world. Yet this passage places this emphasis on the priority of prayer as it relates to God's mission in the world. And one of the things that I want us to be able to walk away with is seeing that prayer and God's missions in the world is so intricately connected they cannot be separated. That if we desire to see souls saved, that if we desire to see revival in the world, that will not happen apart from the prayer of God's people. Now, I know most of you well enough to know that you are a praying people. And my hope and prayer is that you will see today that there is a small distinction between a people who prays and a praying people. In other words, that prayer is not something we just throw up here and there or when we find ourselves in trouble, that prayer is really becomes part of our identity as God's people. That, that prayer is always on the forefront, on the, on the forefront of our minds and our thoughts. That every day we come to the Lord desiring to see him do great and miraculous things. Paul will urge Timothy in this passage to instruct the Ephesians church to re-engage in an activity that it had apparently been neglecting. And I think that's why Paul reminds them of this here in chapter 2. Prayer is to support Paul's own mandate to take the gospel to the whole world. Now, if you'll notice in your outlines, I have three major points. Now, in your outlines, you don't have subpoints here. But the good news is you're going to have your subpoints up here, hopefully, I think. Do we have them? Thank you. Marsha at the last minute put those in for me. She did that yesterday, last night. Thank you, Marsha. I say that because I know that there are some of you that, that really like to have that on the screen so you can get it written down. But let's look at point number one. Let's look at Paul's command. Paul's command was, was for the Ephesian church to pray for all people. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position." That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, in every place. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible that you use, you'll notice 
that whether you're reading of the NIV or the ESV or, or various other tra- uh, translations, you have these phrases up front. In the ESV, it says, first of all, then I urge. Other translations would say something like then, first of all, I urge, and it, or it mixes these things up. Just for what sounds better to the English tongue. But, you know, there is something important that we need to see about this. When Paul uses the phrase, first of all, it could be used or understood in a couple of ways. Sometimes when Paul says, first of all, he's going to give a second of all and a third of all and a fourth of all. Common sense, right? Well, this is not the case in this passage. When Paul says, first of all, we can only assume that Paul is indicating that what he is about to say is of first importance. And this is the issue of prayer. It is of first importance in indicating that what will be said next is an issue of priority for the church at Ephesus. You see the word then, first of all, then... This helps us to understand what is going on because the word then reminds us that he's really continuing a thought that is coming out of chapter 1, that chapter 1 and chapter 2 seem to be tied together. And I think that is quite clear. It should be understood as Paul saying, with chapter 1 in mind, now I want to I want to address the subject of prayer. What is that context? Can you remember chapter 1? If you remember, this is where Paul told Timothy, I urge you to remain at Ephesus, to teach these certain persons not to teach different doctrines. He goes on, Paul goes on to give his testimony and uh, his understanding of the gospel and how God used the gospel to save him, the gospel of grace, and, and ultimately his salvation that led to his calling in light of the gospel that, 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 that saved him. To be an apostle, to be a preacher, to be called into the sense of ministry. This command, prayer for old people, notice what he says then. He says, first of all, then, I urge you. This idea of of urgency, he used all the way back in chapter 1 in verse 3, where he used it again. This term, Paul says here, I urge you, he uses eight different times in the pastoral epistles. And the idea of urgency is uh, is, is the idea also of encouragement. There was this urgency and encouragement that was at hand. And Paul says, first of all, plus his use of urgency, lets us know that prayer is the priority and the subject that he actually wants to talk about. Now notice what he says here. He gives this long list of supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. These are all, if you would, maybe categories of prayer. Okay? Different types or categories of prayer. And uh, prayer, we can see or we know by the study of Scripture, is, is a prominent subject all throughout the Old Testament. It's also portrayed in the Gospels by John the Baptist about the importance of prayer. If you read the teachings of Jesus, he talks about the importance of prayer. And and what we can deduce from a reading of the Scriptures is that prayer is central to both the public and the private lives of the Jewish community. And in the New Testament, it's also central to the believer's relationship to God through faith in Christ Jesus. And that the gospel message actually mandates this faith relationship with God. Now I want to say this. Oftentimes we look at prayer as if this is the mechanism by which we get things. Right? But I, 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 I am personally persuaded that, that prayer is more than a mechanism by which we ask God for stuff. 
I really think at the core of prayer is the issue of faith. That when I go to God in prayer and you go to God in prayer, we are exhibiting faith in the God who answers our prayer. It is an issue of trust that when I go to God in prayer, what I'm really saying is, God, I'm trusting you for this situation. If there's sickness, here's what I recognize. I can't do anything except walk along aside a person, maybe uh, distribute some medicine. I can rub their back. I can, you know, give them something to ease the pain. But when I go to God in prayer over someone who is suffering, what I'm really saying is, Lord, I am ultimately depended upon you in this situation. Prayer is, is really an issue of faith and trust in God. These various terms that Paul uses here, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, are all stated in the plural. And, and in reality, they all have overlapping meanings and over and they're overlapping terms, similar in their meanings with one another. Oftentimes, when you look at the Greek words, the Greek word may be translated petition here. It may be translated that same word intercession in another place, which does not make these these well-defined categories. So it causes us to ask the question, why does Paul list this long list of categories of prayer? I do believe that Paul has a purpose in using these terms. I believe that he was explaining how prayer in multiple forms should be uh, how we approach God in faith. In other words, whatever it is that we may be facing or whatever need that we see, we need to be able to approach God and ask in various ways in uh, in order for him to accomplish, you know, what we are uh, to answer what we are praying for. Now, I'm not saying that these words don't have meanings, general meanings. For example, in this list of things, when Paul says petitions, what does he mean by petitions? Generally, a petition is a direct request made to God for something or for someone. I'm asking God. That is a petition for a particular thing. When Paul uses the term prayers, what does prayers mean? Prayers is the most general term for communicating petitions or intercessions. So it's just a a general terminology. But what about intercessions? Now, oftentimes you hear people make a big to-do about intercessions. But I learned something this week. Do you know how many times the word used for intercessions is used in the New Testament? Twice. Only twice. Twice. Now, other terms are sometimes translated intercessions, but the the term used here is only used twice in the entire New Testament, and both of them are in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. The idea of an intercession is to make a petition on the behalf of another individual. Or the idea of interceding on behalf of another. When a brother or sister is sick, or if we have a neighbor who is lost, what an intercession is means that I come and I pray for on their behalf, for their healing. I I come and I pray for their salvation. That would be an intercession. The fourth category Paul gives us is thanksgivings. This is probably the most self-explanatory of the list. That prayer that expresses thankfulness to God. And these prayers describe what I believe Paul is telling us as a local church and was telling the church at Ephesus. These are, these prayers describe what public prayers in the Ephesian congregations should consist of. That if you're a local church, That our public prayers, whether they be our pastoral prayer or closing prayer or my prayer before the people, they, our prayers should be consisting of petitions and intercessions and thanksgivings. This is what prayer and public prayer is all about. I do not believe that these terms are a liturgical menu, but they're simply categories that the church should use to pray for others. 
Paul, I want us to see here that is, he's making a command. He's saying, I'm urging you that with supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, and notice what it says next, that they be made for all people. Prayer, if you could get this image into your mind, prayers should cast a, a wide net, if you would, because of their far-reaching function. That is the purpose of prayer. And what do I mean by that? That prayer should cast a wide net. Look at the context. Skip down to verse 2. That prayer should touch all of those in authority. Verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions. That prayer should play a role in the salvation of people. Look at verse 3. And this is good and it is pleasing to God our Savior. Verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved. When our prayer should be such a wide net. That because Christ himself came into the world. Verse 6. To give himself as a ransom for many. So our prayers should be this wide casting net because it's an incorporation. When Paul says, pray for all people, what we're really trying to gather in, if you would, through that net is seeing the fruit and the salvation of all people. Christ died for all people. And when I say all people, he's not talking about a particular group of people, but he wants us to understand that, that there was a group within the church that had a different type of mindset on a, on a specific ethnicity. And Paul was saying, listen, it's not about this ethnicity anymore, that the church is much broader and the Gentiles are included into this net. Prayer should be a wide net for a big catch. Prayer should be a wide net for a big catch. I posed this question this morning of why does Paul say pray for all people? Well, for one, as I alluded to earlier, that there was a problem with the mindset of a particular group in Ephesus. People who tended to be insular. People who tended to be exclusive, namely the Jewish false teachers. See, Paul saw a bigger picture and he was casting a, a larger vision, reminding the church that they were a part of God's ultimately larger plan and the way that the church was to start being a part of that larger vision was by praying for all people. All people. Let me give you an example. Paul, for whatever reason, when he gives the command to pray for all people, he, he goes into the next verse, the first part of verse 2, and notice what he says there. He says, and for kings and all who are in high positions, just as Paul was gripped with the scope of reaching the world with the gospel, Christians also must see the embodiment of the gospel in what I would consider my preaching or Paul's preaching in, in the in the life of, of the leadership of the church. Paul was gripped by this, and this was what he was trying to communicate to the church at Ephesus. You see, what the church must see is that um, my involvement, Paul's involvement, any of the elders' involvement in the gospel ministry and the engagement of the world through the preaching of the gospel, and listen to me, and through living out gospel lives. It's one thing for me to stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, you need to take the gospel to the world. But it's another thing when you're seeing that principle lived out in and through your elders. They're not just saying preach it, but you're seeing the gospel lived out in the lives of the people. You see, part of the problem that Paul was facing was not just maybe random false teachers within the community. These were more than likely elders that had been raised up in the church. Paul knew the importance that if God was going to accomplish his mission in the world, there must be an understanding from the top down, so to speak. 
And what Paul here lays down and is, is, is an example on how Christians can get started in their role uh, of God's mission in the world. They are to start praying, verse 2 says, for kings and all who are in authority or high positions. This, this term here, king, probably refers or means uh, like a Roman emperor. Now, who was the Roman emperor in Paul's day? Nero was at least most of it. What kind of person was Nero as a leader? You were crazy. What else? Evil. And he didn't like Christians particularly. At least that was true in the latter part of his reign. It's traditionally believed that Paul and Peter were both martyred under the reign of Nero. Now, this term here, kings, I think, could be used broadly in terms of any type of high governmental leader. We see all throughout biblical history that there have been kings and leaders and rulers. We see Jewish kings, good, just kings like David and Solomon. And guess what? We are to pray for them. That is good kings. When we have had good presidents here in the United States of America, we had the obligation to pray for them. But the Bible also has examples of unjust kings, or maybe even pagan kings. We all know about kings like uh, or rulers like Nebuchadnezzar. We too should be praying for rulers like Nebuchadnezzar. Paul, what Paul is saying in this passage is that we should pray for those in leadership, like our own president, our Congress, our House, whether it be governors or mayors or city councils, that it's really the idea that the church is to be praying for all of these types of leaders. I'm reminded of a passage that we studied back a couple of years ago in John chapter 19 when Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate began to question Jesus. And in verse 10 of John chapter 19, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Now, if I was a fly on the wall that knew the truth, <laughs> wouldn't it have been great to be in there that this earthly ruler was talking to the creator of the universe, asking him whether or not he knew that he had the power? But the, the response is worth it all. And Jesus answered to him these words, You would have no authority, me, authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, you're in the position that you're in now because my father permitted this. He, he appointed you to this position, which tells us something. That positions of authority, whether they, they, they be kings or rulers, that these positions and peoples of authority get their ultimate authority from God. And this lets us know that God has influence over these positions. Therefore, when we pray for all people and we pray for kings, we're praying to the God, listen to me, that can move and manipulate and control even evil pagan rulers in this world. Paul is calling the Ephesians to pray for those in these positions. The second thing that I want us to, or the third thing under point number one that I want us to see is, is the purpose. He goes on to say in the latter part of verse 2 that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What Paul is trying to communicate here, I believe, is that Paul desired optimal circumstances of living. This is what he was praying for. These optimal circumstances would lead to a peaceful uh, and quiet life. Paul knew that this kind of life could only come when kings and those who are in authority helped to create the right conditions for peaceful and quiet lives. Verse 2 
Paul envisioned prayer in a way where Timothy and the Ephesians could call upon God on, on, on behalf of their king and their leaders to permit living conditions that encouraged the worship in the church and mission in which the church was ultimately called. A peaceful and a quiet life are favorable conditions for survival and missional presence. A great example we have here in our own country that during the 17 and 18 and 1900s, missions exploded upon the world because here in America, we found favorable conditions like the conditions that Paul was talking about. Let me just give you a side note to that statement. There were favorable conditions here in America for most people, not all. But they were favorable for the church as a whole. And because we lived in a country, our country was once a place where where, where a peaceful and quiet life could be contained, the gospel message flourished in our own nation. And not only did the gospel uh, flourish in this nation, but it flourished so much that people rose up from amongst our ranks in our local churches, and they went to the uttermost parts of the earth because conditions here were favorable for the gospel. A peaceful and a quiet life will help promote a life that is godly and dignified. Here, Paul specifically has the church in mind. Prayer is the avenue by which God addresses the changes that need to take place for good and godly living. We're living in a, in a, in a, in a time which no, where it's becoming less and less peaceful for the Christian. Less and less opportune for a quiet and godly life that if, if you are a person who so desires to share your faith with other people, you're going to get kickback from it. You know what we need to do? We need to be serious about prayer. When we, when we look at like the president that we have now, whether you like him or do not like him, uh, it's just not a good situation. And it hasn't been, in reality, it hasn't been a good situation for a long time. But if God's people would get serious about praying for kings as Paul commanded the Ephesians, then maybe God would have mercy. Then maybe God would would do what he said that he would do. Many of us have been talking and praying that God would send revival to our church. Many of us have been gathering together and praying that God would do a work and a miracle amongst us. And listen to me, that is not going to come apart from the prayer of a people. And, and yes, it starts with one praying, two praying, three praying. And, you know, maybe it's a handful of people praying. But until we corporately together as an entire body get serious about prayer, then I'm afraid we're not going to see the results that we ultimately desire. Speaking of desire, let's look at point number two, God's desire. Verses three and four, God talks, desire was a salvation for all people. Look at verse three. This is good, Paul says, and it's pleasing in the sight of of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. When you look at this phrase, this is good, you must ask the question, what is good? The salvation of all people, yes, but that's not what he's talking about. What he's actually talking about is what he's been talking about in verses 2, 1 and 2. This prayer for all people, this prayer for kings and all of those in authority, this is what is good. When, when we get serious about prayer and begin to pray for all people in the way in which Paul lays out, and we pray for those in authority over us, and we pray for the peaceful and quiet life that ultimately leads, you know, to, to dignity or, or what does it say there? It, um, 
And at the end of verse 2, godly and dignified lives, when we get serious about that type of prayer, then that's what God says is good. The act of God's people assembling together, praying for all people, including government leaders and those in authority that oversee our national and local affairs, then reap the benefits of a good social order that is conducive for God's people to worship and to carry out his mission into the world. This is what brings God pleasure. Let me ask you this question. It's easy for us to think in terms of God bringing us pleasure, right? That I know that if I obey him and live in a way that is pleasing to him, that that can actually bring pleasure to my life. But have you ever thought about what brings God pleasure in return? This praying church scenario at Ephesus where people are serious about the salvation of souls so much that they gather together and they intercede and give petitions and they're thankful to God you know, before all the people. This is what brings pleasure to God. This is what is good. Prayer is the source of great good in the church and society. Maybe the reason we don't any longer see great good in church or in society is because we've walked away from the very thing that pleases God, which is prayer. Because prayer is the source of that great good. Prayer is the avenue by which God accomplishes his will in the world. The Bible tells us that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. If you or I want to please God, we need to be praying for all people, kings and all those in authority, because this pleases Him. Notice the end of verse 3, that God is called our Savior. He's here, the term Savior should remind us or remind God's children that saving people is God's primary mission. He is, by definition, a Savior. And God's greatest desire is to see the salvation of all people. Let me give you some context for this, and and, and I'll move on to the next This idea of the salvation of all people, what is the context that's being written about here? It's easy for us to gloss this over and say, well, God just loves everybody. Well, he does love everybody. But remember, there is a group within this church that says the church has been historically Jewish. These false teachers that wanted to become teachers of the law, what they were really saying, that if if you really want to be a Christian, you first must be Jewish. And we, we need to live by the law like, 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 we, like we as a people have always lived. And what God is saying in this passage is that he desires all people to be saved. In other words, this is Jews and Gentiles alike. If you remember, if you go back to the passage that we studied in, in John's gospel, when, when, when he gave the parable of, a, of, the, of the good shepherd, remember Jesus said in those terms, you know, that he came and he gave his life for all of his sheep. And he went on to say that, that I only don't have sheep in this pen, but I've got these other folds these other pens, the insinuation that there were other people outside the Jewish people that were his. This is what Paul's mission was to do, to save, to seek uh, out and reach out to the Gentile community. So when God says he, when the Bible tells us that he desires the salvation of all people, he's not just talking about the Jewish people. Subpoint B, God's zeal for all people. 
Verse 4 says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What God wants us to do is pray for all people because ultimately he wants to save all people. That is his desire. Now let me ask, or let me say this, just for the point of clarity. Now you remember my illustration that I gave last week about the guy that was involved in my Bible study that promoted universalism? This was a passage that he used. Will God save all people? What does the scripture teach us? That no, all people will not be saved. And the reason why all people will not be saved is because ultimately some people will reject him. When, when, when this passage says he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth, what he's saying there is that it is beyond the Jewish fold that God is looking at. That God's mission in the world was a worldwide mission. And from all people groups of the earth, when we read uh, the, the book of Revelation, that there are people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. This is what Paul meant, that God desired all people people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God, our Savior, the passage says, who desires all people to be saved. To go back to the casting the net illustration, what Paul is doing is he's casting a net beyond the Jewish people. And now his mission, that is Paul's mission and God's mission, is for the gospel to go into the world. His mission to the world. And that some in the church of Ephesus want the church to remain Jewish. But Paul knows God's heart. This is why I think Paul concludes this section in verse 7 when he says this, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. And he says, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. I teach her to who? The Gentiles. In faith and in truth. You see, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, these two phrases mean primarily the same thing. To be saved is the same thing as coming to a knowledge of the truth. This was God's desire. He had a zeal to see all peoples come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. God has a great zeal for all people, both Jews and Gentiles. And for the most part, I want you to think about this for a second. This is just a thought that popped into my mind this morning and I wrote this down. Do you know up until this point in history that... Mostly, there is exceptions that mostly all religions were primarily ethnic religions. I'll give you an example. Jewish people were the worshippers of the one true God. Okay, Primarily Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel. If you went to Asia, there were certain ethnicities that worshipped Buddha. There were other ethnicities that worshipped these other. So if you were a religious person, you were by default a religious person because you were born at a certain place in a certain time, and that's the gods that your people worshipped. Christianity changes things. In in, In a very radical way. God, in Jesus Christ, changed all of that, making Christianity really unique. And I think that Christianity revealed the heart of God and the zeal that he had for all the people of the world. Paul, like in our day, we must not forget or let the scope of church prayer and evangelistic concern shrivel to a preferred people group. In other words, we can't lose the vision. That prayer and the gospel go hand in hand. That if we want to see the gospel go out, we want to see people be born again. We want to see these things that we must not lose the vision of praying for this in the first place. 
I think this passage is clear that we should minister to all people in prayer and with the gospel. Point number three, and I'll finish. God's provision, a ransom for all people in verses five through seven. The Bible says, verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm not lying. I'm not, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. First sub point that there is one, one. Now this is interesting. That he would say there is one. After all these verses, he talks about pray for all people, salvation for all people. In this passage, a ransom for all people. But right in the middle of this, all of this is related to the one. For there is one God. And this idea, this phrase, one God, echoes Paul's understanding of the Old Testament, understanding of who God was. Deuteronomy 6, 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is not a denial of the Trinity, but a correct understanding of what the Trinity is. We know now in the in New Testament times that, that this one God was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about this thing. For there is one God. Where was Timothy? He was in Ephesus. Ephesus. Where pagan temples flourished. And polytheism, the worship of many gods abounded. And all of a sudden, they were to be promoting a message that there is but one God. I'm reminded that Paul when he was speaking, speaking to the church of Corinth, Corinth and Ephesus were really like sister cities. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he states this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And he was referencing the various gods in Corinth there. But notice what he says in verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God. The Father from whom are all things and, and, and for whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through him are all things and through whom we exist. This was the uniqueness of the gospel. This was the only hope for those at Corinth. And, and Jesus is the only hope for those in Ephesus. You see, Paul declared the one true God in Corinth, and now he was speaking the truth into Ephesus. And this was the only hope for all the peoples of the earth. He goes on to say that there is one mediator between God and man. Who is that mediator? It is the man Christ Jesus. He answers his own question. Paul was noting the uniqueness of Christ as Christ's role as Savior. You see, Timothy's opponents may have thought that the people could be redeemed by the law or that the law could be some type of rallying point for the people, but in reality, it couldn't. Christ is the only one in that unique position to be the one and to be the only mediator between God and man. Why is that? How is it that Christ can be the only mediator between Christ and man? Look at verse 6. There is one for all. Verse 6, it says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all. This word comes from a group of words that simply uh, are the word ransom. That means redemption or deliverance or release. It's not exactly the same word, but it's related to other words used throughout the New Testament. Listen to these words uh, out of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a what? Ransom for many. 
Even in the pastoral epistles, a a related word in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is a relationship here. The zealous God for his people, we should be zealous for good works in him. Christ Jesus' death and resurrection had its purpose, and Paul knew that that was the world's only hope. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was more than a moral example. He was a complete sacrifice. He was in the unique position of a redeemer and mediator, the only mediator between God and man. No God, and when I say no God, little g, nor any saint could come and take his place. If if you need rescuing or anyone needs rescuing, don't turn to a God with a little g. Do not turn to a saint. Turn to the only one who can save you because he's the only mediator between God and man. The scripture teaches us. This is one of the things that makes a, a difference, not the only thing, but this is one of the reasons why there is a separation and distinction between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It's because we believe the Scripture when it says there is only one mediator. And he he only qualifies to be our mediator because he is who he is. Says that this happened, his redemption, his ransom was given, is a testimony given at a proper time. Christ's death was not an afterthought. It was part of God's plan of redemption. And his death and resurrection came at the proper time or in God's perfect time in his perfect plan. Paul finishes up this section, and I've read it before. When he, think, when he looks back to the ransom of Christ, Paul says it was for this reason. <laughs> for this reason, verse 7, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles because of the death and resurrection of Christ. He lays this out, a preacher, as as someone who proclaims, someone who heralds, apostle, gives him authority in speaking these things because he was appointed by Christ to be an apostle, seen by Christ, or he saw the risen Christ, and a teacher to the Gentiles, a specific calling for a specific mission. This is Paul's attestation. To the gospel of Christ. I want you to know something this morning. That God has a plan. And it's good. It's a good plan. And what he wants to accomplish is his good pleasure. You see, his good pleasure is accomplished when we, his people, pray for the completion of his mission in the world. God has a zeal for for his people, for all people, both Jews and Gentiles, and his church is a part of that plan. And if we want to see people saved, then we need to pray like Paul commanded, for all people, kings and those in authority, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in in every way. Now, several times over this past year, I have called you to prayer over certain things, and I want to say to you, you have responded. This morning, I want to call you again. I want to call you to begin to pray for all people and to pray for their salvation and to pray for our leaders and even pray for the sick. And the reason why I say pray for the sick is because there have been a lot of people in our church uh, here lately suffering with sickness. Sickness. 
And this call that we find from Paul and and from myself is a calling of the whole worshiping community, the whole of the local church. And just as the Great Commission's responsibility is laid upon the whole of the church, so is prayer for all people. The Great Commission and prayer, remember, are yoked together for God's good purposes and His good pleasure. Join us after the service if you need prayer. A reminder that if, if you want to join us in prayer tonight, this is God's timing on this sermon because we have prayer tonight at 6 o'clock. And, that, and here's why I'm saying people are responding. That group on Sunday night continues to grow. And we're seriously praying. Now, I will say this to you. You may say, I don't, I've never prayed out loud. I don't know what to do. Listen. Come and be with us. You're not expected to say anything. Listen and pray quietly. And we can pray together and pray for all peoples. Pray for the salvation of the nations. Because this, I believe, is what God desires for us. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we consider an all-encompassing need, when we consider your mission in the world, that your greatest desire is to see the salvation of all people, of every ethnic group and tongue and tribe in the world, that it is your desire to to save people from each group, both Jew and Gentile. God, the, the only way that you can orchestrate that, Father, is through your wisdom. And you have taught us that if we're serious about the salvation of people, that we need to pray for all people. Burden our hearts this morning for the lost. Burden our hearts for the redemption of those that are captive by sin. Burden our hearts for those that we don't know well. Burden our hearts for the communities that, that, that we don't understand. Burden our hearts for, for those that are oppressed. Father, burden our hearts for those who who are religious, Father, that yet do not know you. God, burden our hearts for what your heart is burdened for. The very zeal, Father, that you have for all people, the very zeal that you have for your church, God, create that zeal within us to pray and to preach and to share the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we seek your face When our lips confess You are Lord of all King of righteousness And our hearts will sing Glory to your name We will join with those In heaven who proclaim You are worthy, Lord, our God. You are worthy, Lord, our God. To receive glory. And when we contemplate The wonders that we'll see Beauty of your holiness And all your majesty We will worship you Our Savior and our King Our hearts will overflow 
with love we will sing you are worthy lord our god you are worthy lord our god to receive glory to receive praise God Almighty, a God who saves, you are worthy, Lord, our God. You are worthy, Lord, our God. You are worthy. will overflow with love and we will sing you are worthy Lord our God you are worthy Lord our God to receive glory couple things. Um, don't forget, Gunner is starting a new, it's not small group, but it's on Sunday mornings. If you might be interested in getting here a little bit early, joining him in his small group, get with him and sign up for that. And the other thing is, don't forget, we have prayer tonight, six o'clock. And uh, I invite you, I invite every one of you to come. And uh, we usually meet in the foyer. If there's too many to meet in the foyer, we'll come right in here and we'll meet and we'll pray. And we'll pray as Paul instructs us to pray. Anything else? Okay. Now for the benediction. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Go in peace.